Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Maxine Savage, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tim Frandy about his new book, Inari Sami Folklore, Stories from Anar, out from University of Wisconsin Press this year. Tim Frandy is assistant professor in the Department of Folk Studies and Anthropology of Western Kentucky University. Tim Frandy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. I'm excited to talk about this book. Um, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, how you entered folk studies. No, otamun mun alkan mun haladivchen dajat burras mu samenamale duamas tim ja mun lain davi Wisconsin seret anashnabi etnamis mutamabiarash le vuhtan kemi kema ja karasavan samis eret. A traditional introduction and a land acknowledgement um, before we begin um, that my family, um, in fact, is from uh, historically Kemi and Karasavan uh, Sami territories, uh, which is actually what led me into this book. I, I didn't grow up there. Uh, we're several generations removed. Uh, I grew up in northern Wisconsin on Anishinaabe traditional homelands. Um, so th- I guess my... Um, what led me down this path is an interest in being able to uh, learn about my own culture, which it was not very represented uh, in traditional education system, not very well represented in popular culture, not represented in my undergraduate experience, where I uh, went to, where I studied literature um, primarily. And uh, as I went, got into my twenties, I became more and more interested in. Uh, learning about my own, my own culture, my own family, uh, my own roots. And that led me down a, a trail looking into Finnish and Sami cultures. Fascinating. I think a lot of us find some of our own history to be an enlightening path through to our scholarship. I know, it's um, really self-indulgent, I realize. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I don't think so. Um, or at least I don't see it that way. Um, so this book, it comes to us in a sort of, it has a very interesting winding history, uh, an interesting genealogy, perhaps you might say. Um, so how exactly did you come to translate in Naresami folklore? Well, I was, uh, as a graduate student, I was very interested in language and increasingly interested in local cultures. And I was learning Finnish and uh, through Finnish, I was learning uh, North Sami language. And uh, part of my routine coursework with uh, Tom Dubois, my advisor, was to just, you know, read traditional tales. And there's not much Sami literature or Sami, especially Sami oral tradition, written in English. So I had to go out and find them in Finnish or Norwegian or or in Sami and and start translating. And I was working with a collection, this this collection, which was um, uh, published originally in 1917, 
but this in another collection uh, looking at Nwaiti tales or stories of the traditional healers or shamans in Sami communities. And there, there were a few in here and I became familiar with the collection. And uh, eventually I just, um, I translated some of the book and I'd let it sit for several years. And one summer I happened to have two weeks and I thought, oh, uh, some of these tales would, I should translate some more tales because maybe I'd like to teach teach some of them at some point in a course. And so in two weeks, I managed to get through with translating about half the book, uh, wow. which unfortunately I didn't, uh, I hadn't secured permission from the, uh, the press or the, the, the authors who were deceased, but um, eventually I contacted their children and grandchildren to get permission to translate it into English and publish it, you know, in a legal manner. So this, th- that's sort of how I got started with it. The history of the book is also very fascinating. Uh, I'm not sure if you, you want to hear about that or not at this point. Yes, absolutely. Please. Yeah. So, you know, it was the collection itself is from 1886 is when the, the stories and songs and tales and proverbs and riddles were uh, first collected. Uh, there, there was a lot of interest in Finland in exploring increasingly rural and remote communities particularly in the far north and far east, where there was very much in the spirit of uh, national romanticism and um, people would go out to try to find the sort of so-called essence of the folk in these traditional stories. And Elias Lundrup, a great Finnish ethnographer, did so and compiled the Kalevala in the, in the 1830s in that, that fashion. So in 1886, there was an undergraduate in his young 20s named uh, August Koskimies, who uh, was encouraged by his professor in Helsinki to go to Inari or Anar, this far northern Sami community, which has a uh, distinct uh, regional language and culture and go and collect linguistic samples uh, for the further study of of, of the Inari-Sami language. And to do so, one of the common ways people did that was to collect stories. So he spent one summer in the summer of 1886 for about three months uh, living in an old uh, parsonage uh, up, up near the, the, the church in, in Inari. And he, he spoke with everyone he could come uh, be in contact with, and he collected hundreds of pages of material. Um, so that he brought this all back to Helsinki after the, the summer, and there were, there were no roads going up there, so he was at a long overland walk and he traveled by raft and ferry and uh, he brought it back to Helsinki and the manuscript sat for about 30 years. And now he didn't even speak the language really. He, he studied for a couple of months before he left. So he wrote everything down phonetically to the best of his abilities in this sort of, you know, hodgepodge trans- transcribed material. And it just so happened in around 1917, uh, the manuscript fell into the hands of uh, Toivo Itkonen, who was a great Sami ethnographer. He was a Finnish ethnographer of Sami descent who happened to live in Inari when he was a child. And he could read the manuscripts well enough to update them into readable Sami language and update them into, and then translate them into Finnish um, adequately. So the book was first published in 1917, 30 years after it was collected. Uh, and so that's that's sort of the, the root of the, the text and the stories go back a ways and they, they really tell an interesting story, I think, at least, 
of a period of cultural shift in that community where there's shifts from, um, well, you see, the shift towards Christianity had happened um, a century or more before, but there's still tensions in the community over that. There's tensions in the community uh, over a shifting economy that had, in the 1830s, really pivoted towards agriculture and away from fishing and reindeer hunting. And you can kind of see all these tensions alive in the book, and it tells a story of a community sort of in flux. Yeah, thank you. It's, you know, it strikes me as you tell us that story of how this sort of text came to be in your hands and now in our hands, sort of how kind of amazing it is that it's lasted and sort of survived all these different permutations of phonetic transcription um, to this translation that we have. So that's really, I think, pretty special that we have this document um, and these stories. Yeah, I um, cannot imagine how difficult it would be to transcribe something phonetically in a language you've studied for two or three months. Yeah, I would not sign up for that job. No. I don't think so. Um, but speaking of, I think towards the end of your explanation, speaking about the community that this sort of gives us a, a bit of an insight to, um, you mentioned in your introduction that you're following a sort of person-centered approach to this sort of folklore project. And that makes me think, you know, who are the storytellers that we're encountering in this work? Um, and sort of what sort of research did you have to do into finding who these people were and how they might have come into contact with Koskamias? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the, the shifts I made in the in the book and through, I guess, the evolution of this manuscript is that um, originally folklorists were most interested in the, the stories themselves, the texts themselves, and the people weren't just simply weren't very important uh, in, in what the stories were all about. Um that that pivoted really in the 1960s, 1970s in folklore studies, where you know you don't just tell a story to your children or your grandchildren because it's something you heard. You tell it because you like it. You tell it because you relate to a character in it, or you think it communicates some sort of lesson that you want to transmit, sort of subtextually. And so, if you look at just the text, you you, you can only get so much out of the community. But if you start breaking them up into um, the storytellers themselves, and all since all most of the names were recorded, you can really get a sense for the individuals. And then you realize that the stories aren't just this homogenous block, but rather there's a, there's at least some diversities represented in the community, by which you can see that you know maybe Miko Aikio didn't exactly get along with uh, Isaki Mamerna, potentially, you know, because you can see that they have different sort of political leanings in the community. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose that the, you know, the collection itself is somewhat skewed because uh, Koskimeas did his uh, field work at the church. Mm -hmm. And the church is not, it's not what you would think as a contemporary church. It's about five kilometers away from the actual village. It was at an old winter pasture site that had fallen out of use for about 150 years. And so a couple times a year, it was required that Sami people would go and show up at the church. And the church was not just for religious worship, but it was a, also a site of sort of government record keeping and surveillance on the community. So you would go and you'd have to do your legal business there. It was required by law that you attend so many times a year. And so he was hanging out at this church, and then the old traditional governance system, which had sort of 
crumbled a, a couple decades before this is being replaced by a municipal governance system, like a contemporary Finnish style government, um, which is also at the church. So he's seeing, Koskimias is seeing people who are very active in the church, very involved with the emerging government. And he's also collecting only for men. Uh, there's mm-hmm. only, I think, two women represented by name in the book, and they're not even given proper names. There's like an elderly woman from Yuvtu and uh, some woman from Patsioki. And that's uh, that's all all you really get. But you can see that you can see the the how the choices in his methodology sort of shift the the manuscript to be very church centered, very um, pro new government centered, very male centered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it. You sort. I mean, the way you discuss the context of how these stories came to be in this collection, I think, certainly makes an argument for how a person-centered approach can shed some light onto the context of the stories that we're reading and on and on our interpretations as well. Um, but speaking of Miko Aikyo, um, we start the book uh, with songs um, with Yoikis and some other songs from the community, most of which come from Miko himself. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a bit about the sort of limits of lyric preservation for this kind of music um, and also the role it sort of played in the community. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Miko Aikyo, most of the songs, um, all of the songs who have an attributed um, singer are attributed to Miko Aikyo. Um, he sings a couple different genres of songs. One is called a lirte, it's, or it's, in English it's commonly known as a yoik, which is a traditional sort of song that was banned by the church all throughout Sami territories, Sápmi. And lots of them, they have sort of um, uh, spiritual connotations. You know, you don't sing about the bear. You actually sing the bear. You invoke the bear's presence when you sing its song. Um, and the church came down very hard on that. And so he, to to share these livte, these, these yoiks with community outsiders, is really sort of a, a politically charged um, mm-hmm. act, or at least a, sort, sort of a, an act of resistance at the time. Um, as you say, uh, most of them don't have music preserved with them. Some, um, some do, and there's a... A uh, wonderful ethnomusicologist at the University of Oldu named Marco Juoste, who uh, has been able to find some transcribed versions of these that were preserved, um, recorded, I believe, by Mika Aikio's daughter uh, in the following wow. generation. But um, yeah, it, the melodies are, are, many of the melodies are entirely lost. Um, he also sings other songs, Mika Aikio. Some are. Um, involved just happenings in the community. Some are courtship songs. Some are sort of silly songs. There's one song that makes fun of, uh, of Finns. <laughs> Maybe there's <laughs> songs that make fun of Finns and take on the Kalevala uh, epic uh, genre and present it in uh, absurd imagery. I, I think it's a sort of parody uh, of, of that. Um, but it's a nice collection overall. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite, actually... Um, it's about, I, I couldn't figure it out. When, I, I couldn't figure out what it meant. Um, it took me forever. Uh, I'm looking at, looking for it. 
It's about a person and named Rista Pietar. Uh, Rista Pietar, Rista Pietar. Here and there you ramble. He's already eaten two reindeer and he's got his eyes on a third. And I was convinced for a long time that um, Rista Pietar was a, a reindeer thief which is a grave concern in, in reindeer herding communities. He's eaten two reindeer and he's looking at a third one, right? He's jealous. I was completely wrong on that front. As it turns out, uh, he was sort of a, a rambler uh, who sort of lived out in the, the wilderness and periodically would stumble into the village and he had a legendary appetite. He would eat, he'd come in and he would show up at events of people's homes and he would eat um, eight consecutive meals. He would sit down and drink 48 cups of coffee. And so he must have been just an absolute pest if he showed up at your house. So he's eaten two reindeer and he was eating a third, going to eat a third. He's not a thief. It's just a song that's making fun of his appetite. How, how did you figure that out? Where did you find all of this, these dirty details? Well, I, I, that one... Um, uh, I happened to find from Marco Yoste's work, who uh, mm. who was able to track him down. Uh, the stories from him in the community. Um, yeah, he's got his name Pieter Potter, born in eighteen fifty four. So hats off to him for that. Yes, I hope he got that third reindeer. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or well, <laughs> I'm sure he did. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, but sort of speaking of the ways in which a lot of these texts preserve people, preserve knowledge, um, sort of shifting into the, the next section of the book, the idea of tales, sort of you have a few different groupings of tales, um, animal tales, fairy tales, short tales. Um, but one of the things you talk about is how these tales were used as a tool of knowledge preservation, as a way of keeping knowledge alive in the community and then passing it on. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to the tales a bit and maybe the different sort of functions that they served um, within the community. There's, well, I, th I would say that there's a lot of different functions um, they serve. A lot of the, the tales, um, like the animal tales um, and the fairy tales in particular, you find counterparts all over Europe. Um, uh, you know, the, the stories of, you know, bears who get their uh, are ice fishing and they get their tail trapped in the ice and they try to pull it away um, and they rip their tail off and that's why the bear has a short tail or um, there's stories of um, uh, of kings and queens and poor boys like in social ascendancy and and magical objects that you'd see you know anywhere in Europe and which, you know, is, of course, Sami people never had any sort of kings or queens or royalty in that regard. They were, they were good stories. And, of course, Sami people knew what kings and queens were. But, um, you know, a good story gets around. Um, and, and a lot of the very moralistic ones, right, if you're thinking about preserving or transmitting knowledge or values through stories, there the, uh, well, there's one storyteller named Isaki Manarma, uh, who's very well known in the community and uh, is very involved with the government. And he was the schoolmaster. And it seems like half the tales he tells in these sections 
there's you know a poor boy who's hard on luck who meets a king and the, maybe the poor boy steals something and then the king takes pity on him and then it all turns out well because the, the poor boy gets an education so everything is you know education is really really important education is really important says the schoolmaster through all these different tales and you can tell you can tell he's probably telling every all the young children in the community that they too if they only get an education then then they they will be able to uh you know ascend socially um i think i mean maybe more interesting of the humorous tales i i i find a bit more interesting myself um there's stories about uh, uh they're called you know numbskull tales right where people are so incredibly stupid that they're it's infathomably stupid and to great comedic effect. Um, and there's sort of a normalizing factor, right? There's all, all these lessons. Don't be that person. Don't, um, don't try to um, uh, create a hole in the top of a shirt by putting it on your husband's head and whacking him with a board. Or if your house is too dark, don't try to carry light into it inside a sieve it doesn't work so there's all these sort of these sorts of tales along that line uh maybe more interesting in in terms of actual like transmitted knowledge might be the uh what we find in the the belief legends or the historical legends i'd suggest mm-hmm. yeah please um i think some of those were really fascinating to read and you talk a lot about the ways in which um legends of belief uh, are sort of told as if true, but often deal with the supernatural. Um, and so they sort of test the sort of listener or the recipient's um, understanding of reality um, and the ways in which we perform belief. Um, so I would be, I would love to hear you talk about them in detail. Yeah, well, I mean, their legends often play with the sort of tension of believability. Um, for a contemporary example, if you think of any, you know, true crime drama or any, you know, urban legends or contemporary legends, they're things that could happen, but you've never actually experienced them happening, you know, serial killers or um, uh, Kentucky Fried Rat sorts of stories. You know, you could, they're totally believable, but they're also unbelievable at, at the same time. Um and that sort of tension, I guess, works in, in both traditional belief legends and in historical legends, right? So for belief legends, you've got like different supernatural um, beings like the, the, the ogre-like Stalo who um, uh, likes to prey upon Sami people, uh, and likes to eat them, um, or sort of the more elf-like uh, Gufi Tarat who um, are sort of... Um, underground supernatural really powerful and benevolent beings um that some people see or some people report seeing even today uh but you know they're 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 they're, uh, it's not really a a litmus test but it's it's sort of at that cusp of believable believability and uh, unbelievability at the same time um i guess the you know, his, the historical ones often do the same thing. There's stories of, you know, great um, leaders performing feats of strength, like lifting giant boulders up or um, uh, doing other like, incredible acts, like jumping 
uh, across a, a like impossibly large strait and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of people talk about legends speaking to some of our anxieties in the community, and especially you know, mm-hmm. um, when you can usually find some sort of worry in, in a legend. And um, it, is, uh, it tells us a lot about who we are. Yeah. So based on some of the legends that you've collected here, what what is your sense of the anxieties this community might have had or sort of what dangers they were they were aware of and perhaps trying to guard themselves against um, at the time and the region that they're living in? Well, I'd probably the best answer would be the, the anxiety over the um, religious shift that's occurred and occurring you know, in the community at that time. Um, there's there's five um, Noiety tales in, in the book, stories about the shaman. Um, and there's uh, another three or four about Sieti sites or sacrificial sites um, in which spirits often live and supernatural powers occur. Uh, yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the book is that it's because it's had this Christian sort of bent to it and who it's being been collected from is that it's come to sort of serve to represent the community of Inari as a place where everyone was, you know, enthusiastically pious, uh, pious Christian. But you see, you do see these tensions. And if you get a, um, you know, because the community still has anxiety about the sacred sites that are, you know, on islands in Lake Inari or, um, or, or elsewhere, or about people who might have shamanic powers who still are living ar- around. And there, there's um, at least one shaman who didn't live very far. She lived a, a, a little bit to the northwest west of the of Inari in a, on the lake Iyavri. Um And she, she, she was uh, clearly a shaman up until the early 20th century and regarded as one. So that, that those sort of anxieties are still in the tales. Um, this magical universe still exists and is potentially dangerous and people don't know what to make of it in, in light of the their shift, their fairly heavy shift towards Christianity through the 1800s. Can you, maybe for our listeners who aren't so familiar with the region or the Sami community, could you explain it? So the Christianization that happened, it, I'm assuming it was the product of colonial movements and probably pretty forced upon the community. Um, do you have a sense of the time period or the timeline or the sort of the methods of the the religious Christianization? Well, it depends uh, which specific Sami community you're talking about. I, I believe the first church uh, in Inari was put in in the 1600s. Um, and it's always a gradual process. You know, you're required by law to attend church and to register yourself as as Christian. There's a great Sami folklorist um, or an ethnographer named Hokan Rudving who's written about. There's more detailed historical records in in Sweden with the Swedish Sami communities uh, on this. And you know, when Sami were required in the um, Luleo River Valley to go to church, to be given a Christian name, to have their drums confiscated, the Sami community to be baptized. What the Sami community then did would be they would unname people 
and give them like naming ceremonies to have traditional Sami names put back on them. They would unbaptize them by using a mixture of like a alder bark uh, concoction that's that's sort of reddish and you'd unbaptize them by using that as um, a sort of countermeasure. And then they go and steal their drums back. Um, so then this was happening throughout the 1600s and 1700s in those parts of, of Satmi. You can only assume that it's probably happening a lot of places. Uh, Unari is a little bit different because there's uh, they adopted agriculture a little bit earlier, and I think it created a little bit more stationary a community, which just sort of jived a little bit better with the uh, Christian missionizing uh, neo-governmental aims to sort of eradicate Sami culture and replace the Sita government, replace the replace reindeer herding and hunting and fishing with agriculture. You know, part of the broader colonial assimilationist. Um, strategy of this other Nordic states at the, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, that is helpful. Thank you. Um, I think also given the, the next section of the book is, um, stories about Chuthit and then also Paivavulapaj and Skoltsalmi, they seem to speak also to similar themes and tensions with sort of a, a fear and sort of speaking to danger um, the ideas of the differences of the communities around us with the two feet invading or with the skull being so close um, and the Christianization of with Paiva Volopaj. Um, would you mind speaking about those uh, stories? Next? Sure. Sure. Um, the two feet stories are some of the most common stories you find in Sami communities. Um, they're about, um, they always take a fairly similar form and, and the film, uh, Pathfinder or, or Ophelash, uh, the Niels Gaup uh, is was Oscar nominated for best foreign language film. It's the first major film in Sami language, and it um, it tells a Chuvit story, traditional Chuvit story. They always sort of take the same form. There's um, Chuvit who are foreign invaders. They travel in bands and they are ruthless. Uh, Killers. They'll go to community. They'll slaughter everything, and they'll steal all the possessions and move on. And one of the common tropes is that when they come, then they'll, they'll keep one person alive and force that person to take them to the next village, because of course this is very fairly remote, and you need a guide uh, to get from one place to another. And so you you have a captive. Often it's a young boy or a young girl. Lots of times it's an older woman who will will be guiding them. And then this, the stories are really about how do they escape? How do they best the Chuvit? And it always sort of, almost always takes a fairly predictable form. It's usually that they gain an advantage by having a superior knowledge of the landscape. So if you're guiding Chuvit over the mountain, then you trick them into uh, going falling off a cliff. You tie, you know, if you encourage them to tie themselves all together, then you secretly tie tie a rope, that rope to a rock and throw the rock off the cliff and they all go falling. Or if you're going down a river, you lull them all to sleep with, maybe maybe you've got a little drink that you share with them and they all fall asleep and then you, you run the raft that they're on over a waterfall. Or if they're on the ice, you bring them over a patch of bad ice. 
or if they're in a boat, you stuff some some like wet fabric in, in the hole in the bottom of a boat. So then they got out in the middle of a lake and then they will start sinking. Um, so it's always about the superior knowledge of landscapes. And it's, again, it's, there's anxieties about um, colonization, about um, marauders, about outsiders who are coming into the community and um, just, you know, really um, engaged in some pretty ruthless behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the other, I, I suppose, the other fun thing about this is Sami people have long prided themselves on being a nonviolent people. Sami people have no documented wars um, that they've uh, initiated, and you know, we're always proud of this fact. But in the Chuthi tales or the Stalu tales, they're just ruthless to, to the outsiders. You know, you kill them as violently and as quickly as possible without any mercy. I, I, you know, even though stories are sort of a reflection of culture, sometimes they're, um, uh, are, sometimes they they reflect what we aren't as well. Or, you know, they reflect mm. a, a violence that's not there, for instance. Maybe it, it helps people be nonviolent if you can keep your violence in stories sometimes. I, I really don't know. Um, yeah, no. Sort of sublimation. Yeah. I think the Paivi Volapaj stories are um, another really interesting uh, thing. I mean, I guess they speak to the tension and the religious shift again. Um, Paivi Volapaj, um, uh, there's a series of stories that surround this character, and uh, they're, they're very tied into Christianization. Uh, there's many where he's burning CIT or the sacred offering sites. Um, Sometimes the sites will like battle back. So if he's trying to burn one down, then the then all of a sudden rains will come out and or winds and blow out any flame that, that comes up. Um, but ultimately, in the stories, Paivi Volapaj uh, bests these, um, uh, for lack of a better word, pagan forces, right? With you know through the act of Christian prayer. Um, there's there's a series of those sort of like Christianization. Uh, stories and then there's a series of stories associated with him with like strongman feats so he is you know placing large boulders in difficult or impossible places uh creating landmarks for instance uh one is um in one place he he puts a giant stone in in the ground um uh called it's called tsiatsikevki um it's on by the village of Unyarka. It's a, it's an old traditional Sieti site, a sacrificial site. But there's a story how no, 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 this is not this is not a you know pre-Christian site. This is something that Paivi Volapaj, you know, the good uh, Christianizer of Satmi, um, he placed it there. Right? It's sort of an overwriting of history. Uh, and and th- those are those all I think speak a, quite a bit to um, uh, you know community dealing overwriting its own past you know, unsure certain how to deal with, um, you know, your physical landscape is filled with these landmarks uh, that are of traditional offering sites and, and so on. And, and how do you reconcile that if you're um, living in the 1880s and uh, these things are still around and you, the, the social pressures on you to be Christian are so intense. I mean, incomprehensibly intense that, you, you know, you sort of 
I mean, that gets internalized, I think, in almost what's a violent act uh, uh, against yourself. Um, and you sort of overwrite your own history because you just can't come to terms with, uh, with it. Yeah, that sounds, it's, I think you certainly make a compelling case for the sort of pressures to do this sort of um, maybe social communal indoctrination almost, or sort of, like you said, a rewriting of, of place almost through story. Um, I think it was something that struck me about these stories in particular, as well as the truth eat stories is the, the very place-based knowledge central to them, um, the sort of ways of thinking about indigenous knowledges um, in the truth eat as a sort of strength, as the means of sort of tricking these foreign invaders who don't know the place as well as the the local Salome populations. Um, and with the Pai Vulapaja sort of place as very central to identity and, and place is almost a sort of thing you have to steward and, and create narrative about in order to to sort of reckon with it. Um, right. I mean, and part of the film. And then I think also, oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, place is so important a lot with a lot of indigenous communities. You, you hear, you know, the woods or whatever place, you know, this is, it's not just, the woods is not just the woods. It's, it's your church. It's your hardware store. It's your pantry. It's your pharmacy. It's your bank. And in this event, it's your library. That's where your history is. And if you go out with any, you know, I mean, if you're ever out in the woods with any indigenous people or a lot of other non-indigenous people too, who have lived in the place for many generations, you go to a place and they'll tell you a story about that place. So a lot of the stories in here about Chudit or Paivi Volapaj or, or whatever, the, you know, you're, you're traversing land and you get to this place and they, oh, you know how this got the name. And then you, you stop and you tell the story there and that, you know, transmits knowledge. And it's, it's like a library. It's a, it's a way to jog your memory, but that's how you re- restore, re- retain uh, I'm sorry, historical knowledge through many generations, and is really effective. I, I, I never forget anyone I've I've heard really better than better than a library. I forget stuff from books all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you, it's certainly certainly effective. I mean, we have this document here in front of us, um, and who knows what stories are continually being told now um, about these places mm-hmm. um, and incorporating these sort of past stories as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about the place, thinking about sort of Inari as a region, but then also we have their neighbors, um, another group of Salme, the Skolt Salme, um, which is the next sort of chunk of stories in this book. Um, can you tell us a bit about the Skolt and what we can see from the stories that the Inari were telling about them? Yeah. The, I mean, the Skolt Salme lived, um, Further east, there, there's about 13 different Sami groups, um, depending how you count and what time period you're talking about. Skolt are still around today. They're fewer, they're few in number, um, slightly more populous than Inari Sami, I believe. And they, um, in the 1800s, you know, everyone gets along a little bit better now, but they, often neighboring groups have conflicts, right, over land use or you know, these people are taking too many fish or these people are, you know, using our berry grounds or our reindeer grounds or whatnot. So there were always some skirmishes. Um, in part, um, because because the Skolt Sami were, 
um, uh, practitioners of Russian Orthodox faith. And there, there's a big divide between the uh, you know, Finnish Lutheran faith that you find in Inari and a lot of cultural misunderstanding uh, that occurs between the two groups. So there's stereotype, Inari Sami have stereotypes about um, Skolt Sami being very superstitious or being powerful, uh, having powerful shamans or being more magical or about being able to transform themselves to, to shapeshift, especially into the form of a bear so they can spend the winter hibernating. Um, but one of the strange ones is that Skolt women uh, take fright very easily, which is um, something I, I, I'll confess I haven't fully figured out what it's, what's it all about. But the there's a number of stories in here about how uh, uh, if, if you startle a Skolt Sami woman by pretending you're a bear or, or something or that she'll work, work herself up into a frenzy and you know, just uh, become potentially violent and dangerous to herself and to other people around her because she can't contain, you know, can't respond to this fright very well. Um, one of the more memorable ones is a, a young teenage boy who scares a, a scolt woman by making some bear noises and she becomes agitated and works herself into a frenzy and she thinks there's a bear and then she goes and gets an axe and she starts running and trying to chase she chases this boy up the top of the tree and the um and she tries to chop down the tree to get the bear out and you know he at the same time he's, he's sort of laughing and and a little bit scared because he, he knows that this could be a dangerous situation and then there's a um they're trying to scare the bear and there's old customs in the region where if women expose their privates to bears, bears will um, uh, run away. So they're all, all the women are lifting their skirts and trying to, you know, taunt and intimidate the bear, which is just this teenager who I think the implication is that he's enjoying it a little bit too much, but um, yeah, all, all these stories sort of take similar forms. Um, eventually the, I think in that one, they, uh, the boy's friends distract the 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 woman who's in a in a frenzy, and eventually she ends up in the lake, which restores her senses. Uh, that's yeah. They were certainly entertaining to read, definitely, um, but also similar. Yeah, confusing. Um, it's one group's interpretation of another. Um, I guess it helps mm-hmm. us. I mean, from you can t- you can read a lot of angles. I mean, there's definitely some sexist angles you can take with it. There's definitely insider outsider things going on. Like you tell these stories not just to mock Skolt Sami people, which there, there could be a little bit of that in there too, but it's also to understand who we are not, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, we we do we're level headed. We're not like the, these those people to the east. You know, we don't lose control. We, you know, we've got ourselves collected and um, can deal with adverse situations with grace. And that's why the stories are told. I mean, they, they make make the community community members laugh. They remind us who we don't want to be and why we don't want to be that way, for whatever reason, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think something that I really appreciated about this collection was um, the work you did in framing the different stories that we're encountering um, 
because I think sort along the lines with the person-centered approach also is, you know, these being works of folklore, these being sort of coming from an oral storytelling tradition is something that's important is the context is understanding the ways in which these stories were communicated and among whom and when. Um, because, you know, if someone just gave me this story about a, a Skoltsami wife and it sort of appeared in a vacuum, I might not really understand it or appreciate it in the same way that I that I do with this sort of historical context. And so I'm wondering through the process of translating this work, um, what sort of was the role of history in helping your understanding of translating and framing them? Um, and maybe that is history and experience you've already have. And so it was a bit more intuitive, but how do you understand that the role of the historical context um, with this book? I think it's central. I mean, I, I've worked with Insami studies, you know, for, for um, 15 years or, or, or more at this point. And I just, I don't think the, I think when people who don't understand or don't aren't familiar with Sami culture historically read these tales and it's so easy to get the wrong idea and to mistranslate messages um, that um, uh, it, pe- people will dig into, you know, whatever sort of exotic stereotype they might have of Sami people, which is a major problem for our communities. Um, you know, everything from, from the, you know, there's a Sami version of Cinderella, you know, in, in early in the collection. And, and I think a lot of people who have wanted to see indigenous and Sami cultures as other or isolated in the past, rather than part of a broader network of Northern Europe, would look at that and say, oh, well, this is just borrowed in. This is a contaminant uh, on pure Sami oral tradition. But everything's connected and everything's interrelated. And if you don't understand that Sami people have been interacting with Finns and Vikings and Russians for thousands of years, um, then, you know, you're going to project what you've learned back into the text. And I think that's why the historical context is so important, you know, because if you don't, if you can't see the complexities, you're just going to take the stories and use it to support whatever sort of stereotypes you already have about indigenous cultures. Yeah, I thank you. That was, I think you succeed in in this text of sort of bringing together the sort of multifaceted and diverse points of view that are present in the community um, and taking account for the context in which these stories were recorded and by whom and in what circumstances. Um, but getting back to the collection, um, up next is The Hunting Stories, which I knew you particularly I think you'd mentioned previously that you found them particularly enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I my dissertation was largely on hunting and fishing, so it's sort of been an area of research mm-hmm. of mine. Um, the um, I wasn't sure when if the collection specifically tried to get these like very dramatic hunting stories. They're mostly bear hunting stories. Uh, there's a few wild reindeer hunting stories, um, but. Uh, I think what I found most interesting in them was the fact that some of them alluded to uh, the traditional wild reindeer hunt. Um, most most Sami communities, especially in Norway and Sweden, shifted towards reindeer herding in the 1600s. Um, but in uh, in some areas, the wild reindeer hunting was 
uh, quite popular. And I think until about 1800, some people say 1790, some people say about 1800, 1810. So in Arisami, people would travel uh, dozens and dozens of miles to uh, different uh, tundra fells where the wild reindeer would migrate through in either the spring or autumn. And so it des- describes various uh, various hunts, right? And uh, that people would, the practices and how people would do that and how people would go out and they would bring back, they would store some of the meat there and they would take back meat. And, you know, the, the implication historically is that it's all shared with the community because there's uh, wealth sharing that occurs in Sami communities um, at the time. And, uh, and, and those are some of the more interesting hunting stories to, to me. Some are, some are a little bit gruesome. Um, uh, and some are a little bit comical um, of um, but um, yeah th- those are those are the hunting stories I'm not not sure what else you want to talk about with those <laughs> no it's what whatever you want to talk about with them um, really um, but I think sort of the the rest of the book with the personal experience narratives and the proverbs, figures of speech, riddles, omens and signs, I think something that I took away from reading these particular sections was really that they spoke to sort of everyday life of this community, of the different cultural values that we find, their, their orientation to time, um, particularly with the omens and signs, uh, sort of this is the, t- the best time to, to take bark off the tree, you know, things like that. Um, I think that's what I found really effective. Um, and similar to the, the hunting stories, the the many different proverbs that you find with fish and reindeer um, and the riddles with so many solutions being fishing yeah, nets. Yeah, um, yeah you, you do. You really get a very sort of a very vivid idea to a certain extent, depending on what you do with your imagination of of what their lives were like, of what what things were important to them, what symbols had had sort of literary and poetic, but also communal meaning, um, if you would like to speak to that. Yeah, I mean, they suppose that, I mean, every genre is a little bit different, you know, uh, the the proverbs, of, of course, are, some of them are familiar, like you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, but uh, some are um, uh, a little bit more about time and how, how do you deal with how do you deal with trauma um you know the, there's that set of them that the the night's never so long that the day won't come and then the day's never so long that the night won't come um so how do you negotiate good and bad times in your life um there's other ones that i think are really funny I, I, one of my favorites in you know, proverbs is that uh shit won't always hit for the place you're aiming for <laughs> Which is just wonderful. I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they just give you a little peek into everyday life. And proverbs aren't absolute. You, you know, mm-hmm. proverbs are often contradictory. Um, you know, what's, you don't judge a book by its cover, but a cl- the clothes make the man are two contradictory mm-hmm. proverbs. But it's also how how we understand. You know uncertainty and i think that's what i mean proverbs and stories more generally do that right if we're in an uncertain situation we like we approach that uncertainty by trying to frame it in a narrative in order to make meaning from it 
And so everything from like, if people are enduring trauma in their lives, you know, or sickness or whatever, we need to narrativize that in order to make meaning from it. Where are we in our process of, of this trauma, of this medical condition, um, of this conflict within your family? How do we understand that? How do we find resolution? And we look to previous stories we've heard in order to, to make sense of where we're at and where do we go from here? And I think the Proverbs especially do a nice little job of um, uh, showing you how, how the community's negotiating, you know, poverty and people with a big head or people who are, um, you know, being too stubborn or whatnot. Um, the riddles, I, I suppose, um, you know, rid- riddles are, are riddles. Riddles are a game um, largely that, you know, if, if they're not interesting if you know the answer, but they're great if, if to tease other people with. And um, there's really an art to having a good riddle. I mean, it needs to be, the solution needs to be like an everyday object, something that's maybe in plain sight, something that should be guessable, but you just haven't thought about it uh, in, uh, in a certain way. Um, I'm trying to look for a good one. Two. Um, there's a lot of net ones, like you mentioned. So, what stands in the water sleeps on the land. I an arrow, a net stands in the water, but not on dry land. A net, feet in stone, ankles in yarn, and head in pine. A net. Each summer never gets enough. In winter, sleeps in the storehouse. A net. Um, <laughs> So it's a common everyday object, but you can think about nets in all these different ways. And it's an act of creativity. And there's, a, there's an artistry and, you know, poetic lyricism and being able to describe an object in a, using these sort of metaphorical ways. Um, and I guess the last one, Omens and Signs, which is the, the last full chapter, is um, um, that like they can tell us a lot about time as well, and that um, I think you know, and I think previously people thought that the omens and signs were a little bit more absolute, but they're also I think visual, visual or visual, um, verbal reminders of how how culture works and how to rem- how traditional knowledge is transmitted. So if you know, if you look at a basic one on Anyuhanus or Yonsa, which is June 24th, the weather is harsh. It's set at the candle day, February 2nd, is freezing cold. So you watch for these these sorts of uh, weather patterns, for instance, and you try you're able to negotiate if is the weather harsh on Yuhanus? Is it, is it are you going to have a harsh spell around that? What does it mean if you don't? Is it going to come later? What happens if it doesn't come? And if you're constantly watching the weather and the weather's so important for your livelihood, you need to pay attention to all these little details. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I didn't grow up with these myself, but I, I always was taught by my father to always be paying attention to the weather at all times. You know, he can tell you what what the temperature was doing 20 years ago, you know, in the season, because you know, he's always paid that much attention and encouraged us to, to do the same. And it helps you understand natural cycles better. The deer, the fish, the birds, you know what they're all going to do if you spend, you know, your 
entire life watching and really paying attention to all that. Definitely. I think like you mentioned with a lot of the different genres of text that we find in this book, a, a way of sort of passing on knowledge and, and also passing on, like you're saying, an attunement to the environment around you and the community around you. Um, there was a particular riddle that I really resonated with. It was, um, what does Asami love most of all? Um, do you remember the answer to that one? Uh, I do not. It's okay. It's a coffee pot. A coffee pot. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. That was like, yes, me too. Me mm-hmm. too. To stop in whatever you're doing, to sit down, to make coffee over a fire, and to enjoy being in that moment. It's, mm. Some people call it the Sami coffee ceremony. It's that important. I, yeah, I respect that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then after the omens, we enter into some of the appendices. And I think Appendix A in particular, um, would you mind explaining what it is and, and why you included it in the text? Appendix A. I have to double check. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that's totally fine. I don't remember my own appendices. Oh, yeah. So um, the collection, when it appeared in 1917 and 1978, it was, um, you know, there's editorial choices that go into any edition, any collection. And in the uh, 1978 version, there were a bunch of Yoik songs that were removed. Um, and uh, a couple of stories too. The the Yoik songs were removed because they were uh, uh, North Sami Yoiks and the, the work is con- concerned with Inari Sami. Well, since I think it was the, well, I don't, can't remember the exact year, but in the middle of the 1800s, a number of North Sami people moved down into the Inari municipality and um, because of border closings and they were pressured to put their reindeer herd someplace. And a, a lot of them ended up in Inari. And so, of course, the um, their songs and their language also entered the community to, to some extent. And they were in the original collection, but then were removed uh, from the 1978 version. But my logic is that just because they're not written in Inari Sami doesn't mean that they're not related to Inari Sami people. And in fact, I think they were mostly sang by Inari Sami people and should be included. So I, I put those back in in the book. Um, there's two stories that were told in Skolt Sami. Um, the, one of the storytellers spoke Skolt Sami and, um, uh, and told a couple stories in Skolt. And so those I put back in the book. Um, one song was I found in uh, some work that was just accidentally omitted from the collection, and I got that back in there too. Uh, the more the better, I thought in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Tim, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, but before we go, I would love to hear about projects you're currently working on. Well, there, there, there's two big ones. Um, one is I'm working with um, Marcus Sederstrom on a uh, collection of, um, a, like a co-edited volume on public folklore and public folklore work called Culture Works. And um, we're hoping to have that out by 2020. And then following that, I'm 
um, because th this Inarisami folklore has gotten fairly good reception. I've been really happy with it, and I think a lot of people have been supportive of the work. Uh, I'm working with Ellen Marie Jensen um, to uh, com compile a, a second uh, collection of translated materials and, and other content on uh, traditional Sami belief narratives and um, religious practices. Um, so I'll be pulling stuff from Just Kriegstad's many collections um, that I've actually translated years ago alongside my first translations from this book. And she's done translations um, as well that we'll be, we'll be working on that together in the next few years. Those both sound really fascinating. And we will definitely have to invite you back for this next collection of Sami belief narratives. That sounds really great. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was really great talking yeah, to you. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to New Books in European Studies. Take care.